Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. This being, what, episode 39. We have been in the book of Revelation for quite some time, episode 39. And with, at various times, being away, this has been a study that has now gone over three months. And so as it has been a study that has really had us spending quite a bit of time in one book. It certainly has been a study that has brought me great joy. Now, before we jump back into the book of Revelation, I did just want to make a couple of observations, uh, one of which is some response that I have received out from our last program. You know, Debbie joined me yesterday evening, and we were talking about Advent and the book of Revelation. And a number of you have made, I think, some pretty important observations that yeah, to really understand the second coming, you must first understand, well, the first coming. If there's a second, there is a first. And how are we to understand really anything about the second if we don't understand the first? So it was very fitting that we spent a little extra time with what the first is all about. And by that, I mean, but what the first coming. You know, it would be important for us to go back to what I believe to be one of the most important verses in all of sacred scripture, because it is a verse that is not only often just overlooked, but really misinterpreted and not appreciated within the context to which we read it, right? And that is Mark 14, 24. You have probably heard me read this before, but if you're really going to get at what the first coming is about, then you must first understand Mark 14, 24. And it reads as follows. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. So there our Lord is in the upper room, instituting the Eucharist. And what does he say? This is my blood of the New Testament. Now, when we hear the phrase New Testament, what do we think about? Well, we think about the 27 books of the New Testament. We rarely think about the blood of the New Testament, the Eucharist. But in point of fact, my friends, you can never separate one from the other. That is the Eucharist and the New Testament. You've heard me talk about before how in the first 250 years of the Christian church, if you heard the phrase New Testament, you only heard it within the context of what? But the Eucharist. Jesus never said, write this. Nowhere did he say, write this. Certainly Paul and his epistles talk about the importance of just not staying steadfast to the oral traditions, but also what is written. Certainly, over time, the apostles were inspired to write. But our Lord's command was what? Do this in remembrance of me. So the apostles and and those who they consecrated were simply doing what our Lord commanded them to do, which is what? Well, celebrate the sacrament of the Eucharist. So when we talk about the first coming. What we're talking about essentially is, yes, the incarnation, but also the Eucharist. And we are at our best 
when we first receive the Eucharist, when we first receive the Eucharist. And this is why we talked about what we talked about yesterday, right? Because if we are going to understand the second coming, then we must first understand the first coming. And the first coming is, yes, about saving us from sin, but also about the Eucharist. This is my blood of the New Testament. Receive it. Take it. Have new life within you, Jesus says in John 6. And in the light of this, we become what we can say the second coming of Christ to and for the world. Now, does this in any way, shape, or form diminish the second coming as we might more traditionally think about it in the final judgment? No, but I would argue it illuminates it. Because if we're going to fully understand the much more dramatic significance of the final coming, then we abide in the Eucharist, living with the end in mind, having that deeper sense of how God is calling us to be the best version of who God is calling us to be each and every minute of each and every day for every day for the rest of our lives, you see. So all very important as we continue to reflect into this all-important book, the book Revelation. Now, what I just talked about, certainly we have already touched upon in our study on the book Revelation, but I did feel it necessary to, from the outset, examine the importance of everything we're talking about in the light of Mark 14, 24, because it is just far too easy to pass over that verse and not appreciate that when Christ institutes the Eucharist, what he's essentially doing is instituting the New Testament, mindful that the gospel, the good news, is just not a saving message, but a transforming message, literally as he transforms us in the Eucharist. Okay, if you have your Bibles out, if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 18, and before I read those opening verses and this chapter being about Babylon, I thought we should consider the attributes, if you will, of Babylon and maybe appropriately said, the whore of Babylon, as it is talked about in Revelation chapter 18. Now, Peter Williamson, in his study, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, goes through these. So what I want to do is just essentially, with Peter Williamson, go through these. Now, we should say first that Babylon was the capital city of the pagan empire that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 586 BC and became the place of Judah's exile, right? Figuratively, It alludes both to the Roman Empire in a moral, idolatrous society that that concerns God's law and persecutes his people, and to other societies that do the same, to the least of which, of course, is Jerusalem, and we'll talk more about that this evening. Babylon especially symbolizes an arrogant center of international economic and cultural power that, that consumes goods from all over the world, whose Leading merchants are among the most influential people on earth. We can also say, as Peter Williamson does here, that the harlot Babylon corrupts the world, inducing rulers and people of all the nations to drink of her wine and her licentious passion. That is to say, my friends, to share in her idolatry, lust, greed, and excessive consumption of material goods. As the mother of harlots and of earth's abominations, Babylon really is to be seen as the source par excellence of idolatry, of making a god, lowercase g, of created things. Babylon, my friends, as we talked last week, is allied with the beast. 
It is a political power that is opposed to God and his people. She is a persecutor of Christians, drunk on the blood of God's people, especially, especially prophets and witnesses to Jesus, Jesus Christ, the anointed one. So those are, to just name a few, attributes of the whore of Babylon, as the book of Revelation calls her, and rightfully so, for the reasons we just talked about, right? Okay, if you now want to turn to chapter 18, and we will read verses 1 to 5. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his splendor, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul and hateful bird. I mean, do you hear what we just talked about in those verses, huh? Verse 3, For all nations have drunk the wine of her impure passion. There it is. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich with the wealth of her wantonness. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Mm, Powerful. Now, one of the things here that Michael Barber does is coming soon is he offers a series of parallels between Jeremiah's prophecy in chapter 51 and chapter 18 of the book Revelation. And so I want to go through some of these, and this will be important for us to really appreciate what the author wants us to see. So in Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, we read, It has become a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul and hateful bird. Jeremiah 51, verse 37 reads, And Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals. Chapter 18, verse 3, For all the nations have drunk the wine of her impure passion, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. Jeremiah 51, verse 7, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. 18, verse 4, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Chapter 51, verse 6 of Jeremiah, flee from the midst of Babylon, let every man save his life, be not cut off in her punishment. Chapter 18, verse 5, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. Chapter 51, verse 9, for her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. We read in Revelation chapter 18, verse 6, render to her as she herself has rendered. We read in Jeremiah 51, verse 6, Requit her according to her deeds, do to her according to all that she has done. 18, verse 8, She shall be burned with fire. 51, 30, Her dwellings are on fire. Jeremiah 18, verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heavens, O saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 48, Then the heavens and the earth and all that is within them shall sing for joy over Babylon, for the destroyer shall come against them out of the north. 18 verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. 51 verse 49, 
Babylon must fall for the slain of Israel, as for Babylon have fallen the slain of the earth. So, why the comparison? Why the parallels? Why the juxtaposition, my friends? Because just as Babylon destroyed the earthly temple in 586 BC, as I just talked about, Jerusalem destroyed the true temple in Christ. Jerusalem will now fall as Babylon fell. Now, going back a little bit to these opening verses, we should say that though the angel uses the past tense, so Babylon has fallen, this should be understood as at the same time a prophetic announcement of a future event. This is clear from the warning to the saints to leave the city in the next verse, right? In addition, the link between harlotry, prostitution, and trade is made in Isaiah's prophecy concerning the destruction of Tyre. It is appropriate that John draws on imagery from the destruction of Tyre since it was Hiram from Tyre who originally helped Solomon build the temple. So you can see how John is drawing from multiple resources to communicate a very important point with respect to the, the fall of Jerusalem. Now, John draws his imagery not only from Jeremiah, but what else did you hear there? But once again, the Exodus. The saints are to come out of this new Babylon, also called the new Egypt, so that they do not share in its what? Plagues. It's plagues. Just as the Passover lamb delivered the Israelites, the saints here are saved by the true lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The Exodus is one example of God leading his people out of his city on the brink of judgment. Another example can certainly be found in God's deliverance of Lot's family from Sodom, huh? Okay, let us now turn to Revelation chapter 18, verses 6 to 8. Render to her as she herself has rendered, and repay her double for her deeds, Mix a double draught for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and played the wanton, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, O queen, I sit, I am no widow, mourning I shall never see. So shall her plagues come in a single day, pestilence and mourning and famine. And she shall be burned with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. So here, the message God sends in judging Babylon is, as Michael Barber notes, <laughs> as the well-known saying goes, a punishment that fits the crime. You see, my friends, just as the harlot city sought to kill the saints, now she herself will be what? Destroyed. Just as Babylon prided herself as unbreakable, so now she will be what? Broken. And just as she indulged herself in all of these illicit pleasures, she will now face painful judgment. Moreover, the angel's message here has an interesting parallel to another Old Testament passage. You know, if you were reading the book of Revelation, chapter 18, verses 6 to 8, there's going to be a footnote, Psalm 137. Anytime you see a footnote, an Old Testament footnote in the New Testament, let me encourage you to stop what you're doing, stop what you're reading, and go back to that Old Testament footnote. 
because there is probably a pearl of wisdom waiting for you, a golden insight to be had. And so let us turn to Psalm 137, a psalm which is a prayer for judgment on Babylon. The psalmist prays in 137 verse 8, Happy shall he be who requits you with what you have done to us. Now it's interesting, at the time Psalm 137 was placed in the Psalter, the Babylonian exile had long been over. The return from Babylon then was a symbol for the hope of God's restoration of Israel in the what new exodus. This is now what John describes. Jerusalem became proud, expecting to be the center for the glorious gathering of God's people. After all, hadn't the prophets said that it would take place in Jerusalem? I mean, is that not a fair question? In judgment, however, they had come to realize, my friends, that the earthly city was only a penultimate one. It was only, as Dr. Scott Hahn likes to talk about it, a scale model of something greater, something heavenly. Because they became attached to the earthly, they missed the heavenly. A lesson that, my friends, has been seen over and over and over again, all the way back from Adam to Solomon to Jerusalem, a lesson that we should pay close attention to. That's interesting. In Peter Williamson's commentary, he poses the question and offers, I think, an important reflection, and it really draws out an important spiritual point for us. And the question is this, what is wrong with luxury? What is wrong with luxury? And this is what Peter Williamson has to say. A luxury is a costly, non-essential expenditure that brings what but pleasure or comfort. Luxury is sometimes appropriate, for example, when intended to honor a worthy person or an important occasion. We can even find gospel examples of luxury that Jesus approves of. They include the surplus of wine at the wedding feast of Cana, the fatted calf slaughtered to celebrate the prodigal son's return, and of course, the perfumed oil worth a year's wages with which a woman anointed Jesus before his death. So my friends, the problem with Babylon, however, is an inordinate desire for the fine things that are what? Idolatrous. Judging from its imports, Babylon's way of life resembles that of the rich man, we could say in our Lord's parable, who dressed in purple garments and fine linen and dined sumptuously each and every day. Not only is such a lifestyle intemperate and self-indulgent, but it fails to use its wealth to meet the needs of the poor at its door. And is that not an important lesson for us? What was it that John Paul II said in Yankee Stadium? You give from what you have. Now give from what you don't have. In other words, he said, you give from your surplus. Now give from your budget. If you want to be in solidarity with the poor, then be in solidarity with the poor. And this is an extraordinary challenge to each and every one of us. Does that mean that we don't pay the bills? No, I'm not saying that. But it does mean make more sacrifices and re-examine your budget. This is certainly what John Paul II wanted us to see. And does not, of course, our current Pope echo that? If 90% of our world 
lives in great poverty and we want to be in solidarity with the body of Christ, this is something that we have to pay close attention to and certainly something that our Lord himself called us to be present to. And so in the light of that, what does it mean to depart from Babylon as this chapter really calls out? Well, like Revelation's first century readers, Christians today need to hear the warning of the voice from heaven, right? Depart from her, my people, so as not to take part in her sins and receive a share in her plagues. Twenty centuries after Revelation was written, the temptations to conform to a surrounding culture that is idolatrous, that is materialistic, and that is just more collectively immoral is probably stronger than ever. Not a few people have been seduced by what the world offers and, and have neglected and lost their faith. Essentially, Christians all across the world are vulnerable to the world's allurements. So what does it mean to separate oneself from the corruption of the society in which we live? It does not require necessarily a monastic or Amish retreat from the world, although we ought to <laughs> show a great deal of respect for those who do retreat from the world as they are called to retreat from the world. Just a footnote, my wife is from Ohio, and every time I visit my wife's family, we go to Amish country, and I am struck by their dependency upon uh, their belief in God and one another, and it's certainly something we can all learn from. And as far as uh, the monk goes, well, I've talked about that a great deal. A great, great vocation. So it does not require necessarily this kind of retreat from the world for all of us. Nor does it mean removing ourselves from responsibility to do what is in our power to improve the world, to make it reflect the justice of the coming of the kingdom of God. Rather, and more specifically, departing from Babylon means avoiding the secular worldview the materialistic values that overwhelm so many of us. Drugs, drunkenness, sexual immorality, and just more generally proud and self-centered attitudes of the society in which we live. We have to remove ourselves from that materialistic trinity, me, myself, and I, and enter into God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This entails being discerning about our involvement with the carriers of the culture of contemporary Babylon. What do we mean by that? Well, Peter Williamson speaks to this in the context of the mass media, the internet, popular entertainment, popular music, public education, and people who influence us in all of the wrong ways, leading us down a dissenting path. Perhaps the, the best way for Christians to resist the pull of Babylon is to immerse ourselves in the society that is opposite to Babylon, right? What do we mean there? But our family, the community of the church, and to really embrace the worldview, the values, the morality, and the attitudes of Jesus Christ himself. Does he not give us a template, a charter to follow in the B attitudes? Have you ever thought about it this way, that the attitude of Jesus Christ is simply the be attitudes, the being in Jesus Christ, and assuming those attitudes 
that he talks about in the opening verses of chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. It is particularly important for especially Christian parents to teach their children to discern the difference between the world and the body of Christ, between Babylon and the people of God. At certain ages, children are prone to admire undeserving celebrities or to look mainly to their peers for approval. This is just what is normal, right? These are times when children require extra (laughs) parental attention if their young hearts are not to be seduced by today's Babylon. Certainly, spiritually vital Christian Catholic schools, uh, good and healthy homeschooling, youth groups, and the like are to be really examined for what they are, opportunities to go deeper into God and that more ordinary rhythm and tenor of life. But first and foremost, we are to see our house as the first school, as essentially the first place where virtue is to be nourished. And so this challenges all of us who are parents to really learn the language of sacrifice and to enter into that language for what it is, the gift of self, that uncalculated, all-willing gift of self, that no matter what, what everyone else is doing, especially if they are not doing what you think they need to be doing, that will not override or overrun what you need to do. Essentially, we have this call, my friends, to not, to not allow another person's weakness or weaknesses to dictate how we are called to love how we are called to sacrifice, how we are called to parent. We are to root these in the objective moral standard that Christ has set up so that we don't slip into the contemporary Babylon, into the contemporary Jerusalem, as Jerusalem was going the way of Babylon at the time of Christ. So a very important lesson for us this evening as we reflect into, again, the deeper application of what inspired John 2,000 years ago. Be rest assured, my friends, there will be a second coming as we more traditionally think about it. There will be a final judgment. But the book of Revelation very much concerns itself with a spirituality that really beckons the gift of love, the gift of charity. And we need to be present to that if we are going to be, again, the best version of who God is calling us to be. Okay. Looking up at the clock, we are out of time. Let us go ahead and wrap up with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening from which we can hopefully enter deeper into your most sacred heart, that we might find these days of Advent, days of opportunity, opportunity to, as Debbie mentioned yesterday, make our, our heart a place for your entrance on Christmas Day. And as always, we pray these things in your most holy and precious name, Jesus. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.